This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book at the dinner hour meeting under the covering title, The Finished Work. And we are still exploring some of the typical teaching which we find in the first chapter of the book of Genesis. We open this meeting by singing hymn number 22. For those of you who possess our hymn book will realize that we started on this note, seated above all heavens, we see our glorious head. Now, when you say seated above all heavens, it suggests there's more heavens than one. Well, that is one of the teachings of Scripture. And today we focus our attention upon a rather peculiar um, work which is registered in Genesis 1, uh, where we read in verse 6 of Genesis 1, And God said, Let there be a firmament. Let there be a firmament. Now there's all sorts of problems about the waters above and the waters beneath, but for the moment, let there be a firmament. And then, at the end of the statement, verse 8, and God called the firmament heaven. Now that is a warning to those who have got a scientific turn. Uh, I don't, I haven't got that. Uh, but if you have a scientific book, and in the first chapter, it gives you a definition and says, now when I use the word, whatever it may be in this book, it is this. Surely we are missing our way if we ignore the statement that he calls this firmament heaven, and then we go on reading in the book as though he never said such a limitation at all. Here we have a limitation, because here is interposed a secondary and a lower and a temporary heaven. We are looking at the beginning of the of this story, we look at the end of the story, and I won't turn because of time, but in 2 Peter chapter 3, among other passages, the heavens are depart with a great noise and fervent heat. They are going to depart. What, the whole universe? No, no, this temporary heaven, which is here for a period, when the work is done, it will be folded up and put away, and there will be the heaven of heaven still there, as it has been all the way. But instead of God being just God, at the beginning. God will be all in all with a redeemed family at the end. So, for the moment, we are focusing our attention upon the interposition of this peculiar, limited heaven. Verse 6. Now, the word firmament has come into our language because of the effect and the uh, way in which the Latin version held the minds of men for, what, a thousand years. Firmament. And that was influenced by the Septuagint version, the Greek version being the word stereoma. Uh, that means something very hard and firm and so on. Some folks come to a meeting and they've got stereotype minds. There's no reference to anybody here at the moment. I hope not. But then, that was an attempt by the Greek translators to translate the Hebrew word rakia, which in one place is to beat out sheets of metal exceedingly thin. But the idea of it being metal is, is uh, just accidental. The word means an expansion. Something spread out exceedingly thin. And one of the thoughts, as you will discover as you go through the book, is that God, as, as it were, enclosed our present system, for in this firmament, the sun and the moon are, so it's a, it's a big one, he has enclosed this system in a sort of an invisible, uh, almost like a polythene bag. Uh, you can't see it. You can see right through it to all the galaxies that are millions of ages and miles away. Uh, but there is a limit. God has set so that this conflict of the ages, this, this battle between good and evil and right and wrong, 
shall not spread and ravage throughout the whole universe. And when the battle is over and the work is done, this temporary uh, heaven will be removed and God will be all in all. But now we must justify that from the scriptures. So without more ado, I turn you straight away to two or three passages in the prophecy of Isaiah. In the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40, where it speaks about the restoration of Israel, for some reason that we may have to ponder closely the context, it refers to this spreading out of a heaven. Isaiah 40 verse 22 It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers, that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain, and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Now there's, in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 45, and Isaiah 51, he repeats the statement that God has stretched out the heavens. So Isaiah's committed to this, that it means what it says in Genesis 1, that there was a temporary heaven, which was a stretched out thing, and Isaiah says it was stretched out like a, like a tabernacle or a tent for God to dwell in. And so you see on this board, I've put in between the beginning and the end of the story that we were looking at last week, the bottomless pit is the translation of the word deep in Genesis 1 verse 2, and the bottomless pit is the word that comes again in the book of the Revelation, with the serpent here coming into paradise and the serpent there being finally uh, destroyed. And in between, during the ages, we have the interposition of this limited heaven. Now, will you turn to um, another set of passages? Uh, I'll only turn to two. 1 Kings 8.27 The first of Kings 8.27 where Solomon is dedicating the temple uh, that he built at Jerusalem and he says these words in verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold the heaven, now that's all right, the heaven, and the heaven of heavens. So that's looking as though there was more heavens than one. Heaven, now Solomon being guided would mean the rockier, the expansion, the limited heaven. Heaven, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. And then if you'll glimpse at Psalm 148 verse 4, 148 verse 4, this is a psalm of creation. The, the first verse speaks about praise ye the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him ye all ye angels, praise him all ye hosts, praise ye him sun and moon, praise ye him all ye stars, praise him ye heavens of heavens, double plural, and the waters that be above the heavens. No explanation, but there's evident recognition there there's more heavens than one. And then if you'll turn back to Job, the 38th chapter and the 6th verse, there's another little hint that's buried in our English translation. Here the Lord is challenging Job, and he says, uh, verse 4, Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare, if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest? Or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations that are fastened? Now this is the point I want you to take home with you. The word foundation there 
is translated 50 times afterwards as the silver sockets on which the tabernacle rested. Now, is that an accident? You see, the Old Testament says the heavens are stretched out like a tabernacle, and in the book of Job it says that even the foundations are the very words adopted by Moses afterwards to describe the silver sockets on which the tabernacle rested. So I think we've got chapter and verse to the, to the justification of the idea that this must be included and not merely a little bit, bit of fantasy. Well now, the emphasis upon the tent and tabernacle to dwell in will have to be considered in three different ways. The only one we can do today is the first one. All the way through the Bible, the dwelling in a tent is suggestive of a pilgrimage. You remember when, I think it was, David was concerned about the fact that there was no um, no temple for him, for, for the Lord. He said, I'm, not, I'm quoting 2 Samuel, chapter 7. He said, I'm living in a proper house uh, built with cedar and so on, but God still, his house is merely a tent. And uh, when he spoke about that, Nathan, who seemed to be quite in harmony, said to him, Oh, that's right, you do you do what's in your heart, the Lord be with you. But even a prophet sometimes can be a little bit astray if he's not being inspired by God. But in the night he was corrected, he said, Oh, no, 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 you go back to my servant David and say, Shalt thou build me a house for me to dwell in? Verse 6, Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. I, God, have walked in a tent, in a tabernacle. And so I quote, without turning to it, a passage in, in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25. He said, you are strangers and sojourners with me. Here's the wonderful thought, that this was no accident on the part of God. He said, while this battle is on, I leave my palace, I leave my throne, I leave the heaven of heavens, and I come down and I dwell in a tent with you. I don't want to lower the story now by quoting the um, words of Shakespeare dealing with Henry V of Agincourt, but you may know them. He said that while this country was at war with France, he would be there with his men, sharing their hardship. And God in some measure is saying, that's what I'm doing. And then when we come to the book of the Gospel according to John, and we read that when at last our Saviour became flesh, he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us is the word. And then later on, if the earthly house of this tabernacle be dissolved, we have a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So we're all sharing in this temporary structure the very the very universe with which we are associated, the bodies we possess, and God himself is all linked together in this great thing. Well then on top of that, we discover of course, as we know so well, that the tabernacle was not merely a tent in which to dwell, but it was a place to exhibit the true nature of divine worship. Now this, will, this must be given a separate consideration. Because instead of worship being something that you say, oh, well, that's what we do on Sundays, you'll find it an integral part of the Bible. And that Satan, instead of being the one who engineers all the possible wickedness he can, the poor wretch is only getting tangled up with, wretched, with wickedness because he's aspiring to the worship that belongs to God only. 
and in the Antichrist at the finish, he gets it for a moment, and they worship the beast, and they worship the dragon. Worship. When our Saviour was challenged, you remember in the temptations, all this will I give thee for an act of worship. So keep that in mind. The tent, a pilgrim, the tabernacle, worship. And then I shall bring before you proofs that the camp of Israel was a military camp. And nearly all the officers, including those who served the tabernacle, were dealing with military terms. So friends, from Genesis 1, right through until God shall be all in all, until the last enemy must be destroyed, there's a war on. There's a war on. We may have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, but outside, we must never be ensnared by lulls. There are only lulls in the battle. It's always on. Why it should last so long is beyond our ability to explain. The only thing we get dropped in the scriptures is, that Israel had to mark time and be enslaved in Egypt until the iniquity of the Amorite was full. So there may be some reason why this mighty foe, he has a length greater than the rest, to see just what he will do and how far he will go. And you and I have to exercise that great gift of patience, which is associated with hope. So that's just a few thoughts. The, uh, the only one I would suggest to you is you look at the scriptures for yourselves and dig out a few more passages. I quote from the scriptures without turning to it, Ephesians chapter 4, that when Christ ascended, he ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. So the New Testament's committed to it. He's ascended up far above all heavens. And in Hebrews 4, when it says that our high priest has gone into the heavens, the Greek word, uh, dire means through he has passed through the heavens and he is far above all now associated with the far above all position is the church of the one body of which most of us in this congregation feel we have a place so whatever you do don't look upon these things as something that should not occupy our precious time on a Wednesday dinner time but it's a part of the very heritage and the title deeds of your glorious possessions. So I commend these things to the study of those here present, those who are listening presently, and when this series is done, and you say, when will that be? Well, it's sort of this year, next year, sometime, and perhaps never. We are seeking to use this opportunity, not merely to give you little bits of comfort and little bits of doctrine, but to take this opportunity step by step to get a little idea of the outworking of the purpose of the ages for which Christ came, for which he died, for which he rose again, and for which he will one day be manifested in glory.